Sweet, this is gonna be fun. I'm not Chingun. Welcome to FS Jam Podcast. Thank you so much, Anthony. It's a real pleasure to have you here. I always like kind of telling the stories of how I got to know our guests and like my first memory of those guests. And I have a really good one for you. The very first time we ever spoke. Oh, oh my God, you're going to embarrass me now. You, you reached out. You reached out totally out of the blue. And we're just like, hey, are you with Redwood or are you interested in other opportunities? And, and that, that was it. And what, what I loved about that is it was so to the point without being like rude or, or anything, you're just like, Hey, like we're interested, you know? And, and I thought that was really cool because for me, you know, I was at a point where I was so desperate for anyone to like even notice me <laughs> to like, just give me any sort of baseline level job to do anything and to have someone with your experience and like you had something pretty cool going on to like reach out to me, it, it meant a lot. And so I'm really happy to, to have you here. I'm really happy to talk about the stuff you're working on. And I'm really just glad to be part of this whole thing you got going on. Hey, Anthony, no, listen, hey, this is uh, awesome for you to say. I don't know whether you saw, but I was kind of blushing when you were praising me. I think it's, it's actually the reverse, uh, which is true. As you know, Anthony, I just strongly believe that life is just kind of a lifelong journey. And we know some things and we don't know some things. And you always try to learn whatever you don't know or whatever subset of what you don't know. And in my view, I actually learn from people more than I learn from, from just kind of reading and all that, et cetera. I also read, but right. And to me, kind of surrounding myself with people who have different experiences and different perspectives is a very, very important part of who I am. So it was just a pleasure to kind of reach out to you and get connected and then finally be able to convince you given all the things that you know to kind of join us on the journey was just an it was an absolute pleasure i went and i don't drink wine much but that day i went in and opened up a bottle of wine and i was just really proud thank you that's awesome yeah and i didn't i didn't take much convincing let me tell you because it's a very it's really cool cool tech that you're working on we're we're definitely gonna gonna get into it it's you know around a lot of the stuff that we talk about on this on this podcast, which is why I think you had reached out to me because you saw the work I was doing on Redwood and you you saw a lot of potential synergies that could that could happen there. But I'm actually really curious to talk about a bunch of stuff that that you've kind of worked on. I think that you're someone who you're very forward looking, so I think you're probably someone who doesn't really talk about your past accomplishments very often, but I think that some of the work you've done is is pretty cool. And I'm actually someone who finds the whole academic kind of kind of world and the research being done there. I think there's like some really cool stuff in terms of how it eventually filters down to, you know, the actual tech we end up using. And you've done some really incredible work with with databases. So be curious to kind of get some background on the work you're doing in Berkeley and the type of people you were working with and why that's kind of significant to the whole database universe. I let others be the judge of whether my contributions mean anything, but I'll tell you what I learned. So I came to Berkeley. I was uh, from India and I came to Berkeley because of course Berkeley was cool. 
but also there was a professor out there, Mike Stonebreaker, uh, who some of you might know, Mike Stonebreaker was the inventor of Ingress, the first or the second relational database, and then inventor of Postgres that we use till today. And I said, okay, I was sitting in India. I said, it'll just be super duper awesome to get a chance to work with Mike Stonebreaker. So that's what I kind of came here for. And I'd already done a bit of kind of database hacking, very small amount of database hacking while I was in India in my undergrad. I kind of dived straight into what the databases were and all that. And it just, it was just absolutely fascinating to kind of be part of a community that was leading the charge. This is Anthony way before you were born. This was in, in mid to late eighties, right? And just kind of hanging around with people who had done this before and kind of learning from them, et cetera, et cetera, was just absolutely fantastic. And I, I, even though I didn't actually contribute core to the Postgres, some of my ideas and some of my thought process actually went into the implementation of Postgres. And then I got a chance to move to IBM and kind of continue that journey of building out really good, innovative database techniques. And what I learned in this world of databases, which has kind of stuck with me for a very, very long time, is that in the world of databases, there is this kind of abstraction where the end user doesn't specify how to get the answer, okay? The end user basically specifies what they want. The manifestations, there have been many, many manifestations. A good example of this would be Google search. In Google search, you don't say all the things about what, how the answer should be gotten. You just basically express what you want. So there have been kind of many journeys on this way. The way databases started, which said, look, let the end user just focus on, on the what, and the database will focus on the how, has kind of stuck with me. And as you know, in our later journey of, of steps and others, we kind of bring these together. But, but just to kind of finish up the story on, on, on the world of databases, what is absolutely fascinating is that databases have struck with us in mostly the same form for over 40 years, over 40 years. And imagine, imagine that kind of technology and that, that only comes about when there's something deep meaningful and impactful going on. And I am, I'm just happy that I was part, I have been part of that journey and have contributed to it in, in some small ways. Okay, I've, I've, I've spoken way too much about myself, but that's what I want to tell you. This comes up all the time, this imperative versus declarative type programming. What you're saying is that SQL is declarative. You just say what you want and then you get it. And this is really appealing for people, say from like the Redwood world, because we have this concept called a cell, which is a way of making our data fetching declarative. So we're already on the whole, you know, the whole declarative stuff is, is kind of cool trip. So I'll be curious then as someone who was already super deep into Postgres and working with the creator of Postgres, you seem to be someone who tends to reach for MySQL over Postgres. So how did that kind of happen? <laughs> no. That's that's a false accusation to me, uh, for me. So after I did kind of database stuff and everything else, we moved to Apigee, and we did kind of APIs, which is a very different world. And hopefully, I'll 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 get a chance to talk about it. And the entire Apigee story was built on Postgres. So I'm actually just in absolute love with Postgres. It so happened that the very first person that we needed to work with in kind of the steps inside wanted kind of MySQL implementation. So we said, okay, let's let's kind of put the MySQL implementations out there. 
knowing fully well that the postgres stuff is going to come come pretty soon so i'm a bit embarrassed but but both mysql and postgres are just awesome awesome databases i've just got a bit of a bias towards postgres but it is not reflected in the way we have prioritized but that's got something to do with market and everything yeah, well, it's, it's funny because everyone who's ever been on the show, for the most part, has been someone who's like using Postgres, and it's it's very much embedded into our our whole programming universe and the the types of projects we're we're working on. And so, actually, the fact that Steps in right now, it's got a, a MySQL connector, has been good for me in terms of actually like having to learn MySQL and get it spun up and kind of see what the the differences are there. Postgres has got some awesome capabilities, as you know, for example, the ability to store JSON right in. And just, I've been kind of just following Postgres. I Once in a while, I get a chance to go and give some keynotes in Postgres conferences. And it's just absolute pleasure to kind of connect back with a community that has not just created in the past, but is kind of continuing to create and everything else. But MySQL is also popular, as you know, in the WordPress environment, PHP and MySQL kind of come together. And you try to put your your biases aside and say, okay, what is it that the developers really need and focus on? And then you'll when you kind of look at it, you'll say, okay, both MySQL and Postgres. Postgres for the people who are kind of building their own stuff, and MySQL for the people who are kind of borrowing other frameworks and doing doing work around it. So both are really important. But in my mind, they are like number one and number two. The orders may be slightly different, but they are both really important. Cool. Yeah. And so before we get into Apigee, there was a kind of mid period between your database work and your, your API Apigee work when you were at IBM, where you were doing work around semantic annotation and this whole kind of idea. I think it was probably because like IBM was working on their Watson thing at the time and this whole like web 2.0 semantic web thing was happening, which some of our listeners may know about and some may not. So I'd be kind of curious, like, what was your connection to all of that research? What did you think of the semantic web? Do you think it ended up happening or did it kind of fizzle out, that whole kind of idea? For those of you who, can, who, who will look me up, you'll know that about now 30 years of my professional life, I've done many things, including, for example, the thing, Anthony, that you just talked about. Let me just tell you a bit about about this world of semantics. So if you really look at it and you say that, look, when you type something in Google and you say, find me restaurants near me, for example, which is very different than what you would have looked for, let's say 10 years back or 15 years back, and you would have said 15 years back, you would have said, find restaurants near me. And at that time, Google would have tried to look for documents and websites that have the word restaurant in them. And who knows what, what it would have done with near me. But today, when you say find restaurants near me, Google understands the concept of a restaurant, which is not the same as the word restaurant, right? So you may have, I love, obviously, uh, Indian cuisine and all that stuff. So you may, you may see something like like uh, Taj Hotel, okay? Or Taj, or Taj something or other, or Indian Taj cuisine. And Google understands that it's a restaurant. When the person says restaurant, that's a concept that needs to be bound to literals like Taj or Annapurna or for my, my son, Lazy Dog or whatever else it is, et cetera, et cetera. And then near me, is a very different concept. There's a concept of location 
and nearness to that location. So you can see that there has been kind of an evolution of kind of pure syntax to syntax mixed with semantics. And that evolution has actually made for a huge, huge difference in kind of the quality of search and quality of fetching and everything else. If you really look at the goodness that Google has done, it has not gone and built out a semantic web. It has not gone and looked at every web page and said, let me try to extract the semantic concepts in this web page, et cetera, et cetera. Two things. One is sometimes it has actually asked the creators of the web page to meta tag the semantic concepts. So for example, if you're writing a recipe page, somewhere you'll say, put two cups of flour and, and this and that and everything else, which is all good. But now Google has to do a hard job of parsing through your entire thing to find out where the recipe is and what the ingredients are, et cetera, et cetera. So Google said, look, we are big. You go create a meta tag. We'll give you this meta tag library. And you say something like this recipe and then ingredients and, and, and. And once we know that, now we understand everything else. And then, yes, obviously the details are there, but we have understood you create the semantic concepts. On the other hand, Google says certain semantic concepts we understand, and we'll actually go and pick them out like the restaurants example that I gave. But the point I want to make is that Google decided to do this as an example, not for boiling the ocean of a semantic web and everything is a semantic concept, but they said, let's look at the most popular requests that people are making. And let's try to create some semantic concepts around those most popular ones. Okay. Either we create them or the creator of the web page creates them. And therefore, I feel that the, the way to the world of semantics is through a very, very practical bent of mind, which is do the least amount of semantics that are needed to improve the quality of responses. Don't build semantics as kind of a root construct where everything has to be semantically annotated. And that is where I think the world of semantic web went a bit haywire because they felt that everything needed to be semantically annotated, whereas Google and others, and you'll see that in, in steps and also taking a much more pragmatic approach makes more sense. Sorry for a kind of five minute answer. Hopefully it was useful to for your listeners. Yeah, I think that's great because it gets at where I think a lot of this data science machine learning stuff has has gone over the last like five years, especially, which is this idea of kind of human in the loop learning, which is that you provide the machine enough data to train to get into a feedback loop that can then start improving. So I think that's kind of the, the idea that you're getting at there is that you can't just tell it everything it needs to know, partly because we can't really specify everything we need to know. So we need to provide it enough information to kind of figure out the answer itself and like figuring out like what information it needs is, is the challenge. Even if Google has kind of an example of an algorithmically driven company still has a huge army of people who go and annotate and add semantic constructs and maintain this and that, right? So it is absolutely obvious that humans and their ability to kind of perceive is way ahead of any algorithmic stuff that exists out there. Now, algorithms can apply it in mass, but sometimes kind of a lot of intuition and innovation actually comes from it. So truly good systems kind of mix and match the two sides. Cool. So let's get into now Apigee. So Apigee was an API management company, I believe. First off, is that accurate? And second off, what is an API management company? 
Yes, so Apogee would call, we would call ourselves an API company, but it's absolutely true that we are an API management company. An API management company is quite simply that if you're building out APIs that others from outside your team use, the others can be the person in the next cubicle when we get together in a cubicle or in, in an office space, or it could be a partner or it could be third-party developers. When you get to your interface, your API is not just being used internally, but is being used by others. Then you want to make sure that the contract of that API is rigid, okay, is 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 fixed and is well managed, right? So that so that the right sets of people are coming in, the wrong sets of people are not coming in. You are able to to deploy the the documents. You are able to to scale the the endpoints, etc. So API management came about around the fact that APIs were really becoming kind of the de facto way in which product and capabilities were being exposed to third parties or second parties or even first parties, second parties being partners and first parties being your neighboring developer. For something that is that important, you want to make sure that you want to surround it with the right management capabilities. And that's how Apogee came about. Of course, as Apogee came about and said, look, we are going to manage the scale and security and analytics and dev portal and, 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 and everything else around it, it started to also do, look, can you actually build out an API in Apogee? Okay, not just manage the API around it, right? So you'll find a lot of kind of API building capabilities within Apogee. But at the core, it says you have your API, what you have, and we are going to actually surround it and manage it. Hopefully that made sense to you. Yeah, last part you said about having capabilities of building APIs and not just managing it, that seems significant because that seems like an entirely different mindset that would be required and entirely different tools that would be required to do one versus the other. So what is involved with providing tools for actually creating APIs and not just managing them? I think that's that's a fantastic point. So there are kind of two different perspectives out there. There's a perspective which says that API is just a program. Okay, so let's assume that there's an API that given a customer's email determines and generates the set of outstanding orders for her. When the end customer is logged in, the developer can show to her all the orders that have not been delivered because she may have made a a bazillion orders you don't want to kind of clutter the space so you want basically want to say look here are your two outstanding orders or here is the expected date of delivery for those orders so you say okay awesome i need to build an api in order to support that kind of request that might come now typically in in larger enterprises the front end teams are different than the back end team so that responsibility then goes to the back end team and says can you build an api for the front end team that delivers the outstanding orders given a customer email. And the backend team then says, okay, good. We've got a lot of other things that we need to do and we've got a priority for this quarter and come back to us, et cetera, et cetera. But when they finally get around to doing it, it's basically a programmatic exercise, okay? Let me first go and fetch something from the customer system and then extract some bits out of that customer system and then let me go and get something from the order system. Now let me get kind of tracking information now let me go and fetch from the kind of delivery system which may involve kind of third-party call if i find that the stuff that is coming out of order system is is gobbledygook then i need to do something else 
if I can't touch something else, I did it. So I write, I start to write kind of a program that goes like this, like this, like this, like this, with all kind of if then else and 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 error conditions and other things put into it. But that is the kind of the, the current style in which APIs are produced, where somebody says, okay, let me write all the kind of programmatic imperative logic, as you said, in order to make that work. Okay, so that's that's kind of style one. And in that style one, you can kind of make it somewhat more of a drag and drop where you can kind of stitch pieces together the way we did in Apigee and everything else. But in the end, it's really a program, okay? And that is why the development teams, the kind of backend teams say, wait, 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 we've got a lot of work to do and we've got to kind of test it and scale it and everything else. So that's, that's kind of one style of building out the API. The second style of building out the API is what we are trying to do in step Zen right and and you're you're very familiar with it and it kind of borrows from kind of the world of search and the world of databases that is in the world of databases or in the world of search i'll give you both examples in the world of databases as i said you don't actually specify how you just basically specify the what right so you don't write a program for every question anthony that you might ask there's no way to write a program for every question that you might ask similarly in google while it's true that the grammy awards is kind of a common query and they could write a program which says give me the best information for grammy there's just so many questions that the billions of people can ask that they cannot write a program for everything else so if you kind of figure out these two things then you say okay there is a different way in which apis can be built which is they get kind of compiled in as opposed to programmed in and is it possible for apis to be built in a way in which backends can be introspected we can determine what this backend can do, or this backend can take X and return Y. This backend can take Y and return Z. This backend can take Z and return ABC. It never is that perfect, but then you can say, okay, good. Now I can actually connect the dots and make things happen. Okay, so that's kind of the second style, which is kind of a declarative style. And what we believe in, in, in steps in, and I'll just kind of give one minute of plug out here. We want the front-end developers to be able to actually self-service their API that they need. And what we don't want them is to have to write all the if then else and all the other conditions that come about with protocol translation and errors and event to cache and everything else, because those are really back-end concerns, not front-end concerns. And therefore we strongly believe that, that a declarative style of constructing the API is the way in which front-end developers will get control over their APIs. So there's an imperative style and there's a declarative style we are pushing for for the declarative style yeah to me this is why people really like graphql in the first place so when we talk about this imperative versus declarative like i couldn't really think of something that could be more declarative than graphql because you're you're literally just saying i want this thing and then you say i want these things from this thing and then it gives you those things and that's like the whole deal so before we kind of explain like what step zen is and all that i'd be really curious like what was your first exposure to graphql oh my god i it, it's it's rare at, at my age that you fall in love with with something it was just awesome because what i found in graphql is exactly what you said but i actually found something very interesting that what graphql did was in my mind it was a phenomenal blend between a very general purpose query language so what happens in a general purpose query language is that 
that there is still a lot of kind of cognitive overload for the front end. Okay, what tables do, do exist? Do these fields exist in these tables? Now, of course, some code plugins can kind of make some things happen, et cetera, et cetera. But there's still a lot of overhead in being able to construct the right query and, and, and everything else. And in GraphQL, that burden basically goes away because you're only allowed to ask certain things. You don't have to read any doc. What you can ask is known. GraphQL tools is phenomenal. The backends kind of self-describe themselves, et cetera, et cetera. So I just kind of fell in love with it because I felt that it took a general purpose query language and put enough constraints on it to make it much more accessible and useful, right? By the front-end developers. I mean, if you kind of poll your colleagues, they'll say, yeah, we can do kind of simple tasks in SQL, but at some point SQL gets very complicated, right? I mean, even I have to sometimes open up this, the handbook of SQL to say, okay, what does a with clause on K statement, how the hell do I actually write it, right? Whereas in, in GraphQL, the way you write and the responses you get is just so intuitive that I've just kind of fallen in love with it. I think that is the way in which the world of front-end developers asking for data from the back-end, that is the, the next decade. Yeah, I like what you said about constraints because I think a lot of people don't appreciate like the benefits that constraints can give you. This is something that I've really learned from not really the, the programming world, but more of like the kind of art world. And I always found that when I was constrained in terms of what tools I had for like music making, that actually led to some of the most interesting music I could make because it helped me hone in on like, what can I actually get my hands on and what can I manipulate and how could I like use that to create the overall bigger thing. So the fact that GraphQL is kind of constrained is actually, I think what makes it really nice because it narrows the focus of like, what you have to think about as a programmer and what is going to be expected of you in the types of things you're writing within your program. And what you said about this kind of like split between the front end and the back end, this really kind of gets at like the core of not just GraphQL, but like really this, this whole podcast and, and what is the front end and the back end? Like why, why are they split? Do they have to be split at all? Should they be split? And I've found that it's partly like an organizational thing and partly an actual technological thing because there are differences there are separate concerns there but at the same time those concerns could be handled by a single individual so how do you think about the split between the front end and the back end do you think it's like a natural kind of like force of the universe or do you think it's like an artificial split that we kind of create or like how do you kind of think about that so I think that sometimes separation of concerns is good. Now, what happens is that it is absolutely, as you pointed out, in kind of larger organizations, naturally it happens because you've got to do things at scale and kind of expecting people to be vertically aligned is slightly more complicated than expecting people to be kind of horizontally aligned, right? So that's just kind of a natural thing that arrives out of uh, this, but again, it's mostly an artifact of organizational structures, as you pointed out. There's no reason to believe that you can't form teams that are kind of like this, as opposed to like this, right? You don't have to expect somebody, one person to know everything, but you can always form teams that are like that, but it typically doesn't happen because of organizational constructs. You're absolutely right. But there's kind of a second, second thing also. 
And then the second thing really is that in the end, the number of things that people can kind of cognitively grasp, unless you're Einstein, and I'm sure Einstein outside, outside a few things couldn't really cognitively grasp poetry. I don't know. I'm just making it up. I'm sure maybe he did or maybe he didn't, right? But fundamentally, the number of things that you can cognitively grasp is somewhat limited. And if you just kind of think about it, you've got to say that, look, at some point in time, some things are outside your sphere of cognitive deep knowledge. And there's nothing bad about it. There's actually very good, which say that you kind of know what you don't know, or you know what you don't want to know, etc. And that just makes you a better person than saying, no, look, I'm going to try to be an expert in, in everything. Right? So in my mind, this concept of the, the sphere of what I'm good at and I know what the boundaries are is actually goodness as opposed to badness. And therefore, in that world, you say, okay, look, what is the right way in which when people have their own kind of sphere of knowledge and, and expertise, what's kind of the right way in which those different expertise can kind of come together in order to make something work? And in my mind, the answer here is API. And API is such that it actually has the ability to abstract the backends away and provide enough of the backend functionality to the front-end person. And an API is a way in which the, the backend person, to a degree, can figure out something so that there is now a contract with the front-end. So in my mind, APIs are really good for this kind of front-end, back-end thing. But there's a problem in APIs that I just referred to like 10 minutes back, Anthony which is that they're just very hard to build. The way we see it in StepZen is that APIs should be self-serviceable and buildable with some constructs that the front-end person understands. Those APIs must kind of connect the back-end stuff and the back-end APIs are built by somebody who understands the back-end. So if you can kind of think about kind of a layering where there's an API or a set of APIs that the front-end person builds and understands, and there's a set of APIs that the back-end person kind of builds and understands, then I think there's a phenomenal meeting in the middle. And that's why in Step Zen, what we are trying to do is to allow the front-end person to actually build the API that she needs. I don't know whether that made sense, but that's, that's our perspective. Yeah, I think that's that's great, and I think that gives us all the context we we kind of need here to say like, all right, now what what is steps in? Like we've talked about the problems, we've talked about you know why we think this is you know a good solution in GraphQL, but like what is steps in at the end of the day? How would you actually describe what it is to someone? Steps in is a tool that allows a front end developer to basically point to a set of backends and get a GraphQL API out of it in minutes. And then that GraphQL API is always on so that the front-end developer doesn't have to worry about that API ever going down. There are basically two parts. In the build part, allowing the front-end developer to point, 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 and, and out pops a GraphQL API and then giving that API to steps in and saying, please run it for me that I don't have to worry about. It's pretty good, yeah, I like that. For me, I had such a, such a hard time wrapping my mind around steps in and 
and then trying to figure out how to like explain it to other people. There's, there's one term that I kind of come back to and that it made sense to me at least. And what's funny is like, I didn't really know what this term was like before steps in. I kind of like had to research it a little bit, but there's this term, which is a gateway, specifically API gateway. And I'd be curious to get your definition of what is an API gateway and do you think that's a good or a bad way to think about steps in? Yes, absolutely. You can think about it as an API gateway, but an API gateway is basically a layer above an API. It's kind of part of what we are talking about with respect to Apigee and API management. API gateway is basically a gateway. Literally, it is, shall I let you in or shall I not let you in kind of thing. And those are very, very important constructs. But even after you come in, what do you see? And therefore, StepZen is focused on what is it? What is the API? Not just what is kind of the gateway around the API. But again, the construct, the, the concepts are very, very similar. But in effect, what StepZen is, it's kind of an entry into all the backend goodies, but kind of a limited perspective into the backend goodies that only you care about and that you have kind of built up yourself. And now you can kind of pretend that all the right backend goodies are available to you at that gateway endpoint, if that analogy kind of uh, makes sense for you, right? So in some ways, uh, as, as our colleague Lucia talks about, in some ways you kind of construct your own dish from all the ingredients that exist. And all you're doing is you're kind of uh, gorging on the dish that you have you're built out because you've said, I want this and I want that and I want that. And magically steps and acts as a, as, a, as a chef. I'm carrying this analogy a bit too far and kind of constructs that dish for you. And then you can just basically go and eat how much or however little you want out of it whenever you want. Yeah, I think that's great. And what I'm curious is how do we select the dishes? How do you decide what's on the menu? So one of the problems that happens today is that because an API takes a long time to build, you have to be very careful about what you want. And the backend people have to be very careful about, look, what are the things that somebody may ever want? So what you really find is you find a huge amount of bloatware that happens in the APIs because you might as well dump everything that somebody might ever want. And then the front-end person, poor front-end person, either doesn't get what she wants or she gets so much more that she's kind of shift, sifting through and trying to find out what, what it is, right? So because APIs are kind of difficult to build, it is just much easier in today's world for people to just kind of say, let me throw up everything or the front-end person say, let me ask for everything. What we want is we want to make that construct to be completely frictionless, which means that today you ask for bits A and B, they'll appear to you. Tomorrow you say, no, no, I want to add a side dish of fries if you really want to do that. Again, I'm carrying the analogy a bit too far. You can add fries, okay? The idea really is that don't overthink what you would need way into the future. Don't plan three quarters down or two quarters down. Just get the right data that you want right now. Build your interface, build your web experience. Now you say, okay, I want something slightly more. Add something more. That's the model of, I think, is a much better model than kind of putting a gun to everybody's head and says, determine what exactly you need. Does it make sense? Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I'd be curious to talk a little bit about what is the tech that's underlying StepZen, like without revealing any of the secret sauce, of course, but like what is underpinning the actual like StepZen thing itself? Underneath the StepZen, we've got this kind of core 
database constructs, which is that backends appear as these kind of virtual tables. You can call them interfaces in GraphQL language. There is approximate correspondence. And that each backend is basically an implementation of that virtual table. And we know in that table what can be asked and what it returns. But the table itself is empty. There's nothing in the table. It's just a shim. It will only get populated by kind of calls to the, to the backend. And so once we know what this table can do, we can determine whether this table's output can be fed into this table. So for example, you may have a customer backend. This is actually the, the demo that Anthony, you helped us build, where a customer information may come returning the city of the customer. Awesome. Okay, so there's a virtual table which says, given an email, it can actually return information of a customer, including the city that, that she's in. Now, you as a front-end developer want to figure out the weather that you want to display for that customer. Hello, in Miami, it is 97 degrees Fahrenheit or whatever it is in Miami all the time. The second virtual table that you have only takes lats and longs. Doesn't know how to take cities because who knows, somebody built that stuff up. The backend API may only take lats and longs. So you've got one table that emits cities and the other table that requires lats and longs. And of course, you want to kind of start with an email and come back with a weather. So you've got to kind of connect the dots between these two. And that is where, for example, the semantic constructs come into play. A city is a location and a lat long is a location. And therefore, to get from city to lat long, it's basically a series of transformations that will enable us to get from here to there. So you take the street address and you take the city and then you are able to, therefore, some lookup will enable us to generate a lat long that you can then feed into this, right? So at the core in steps in, the basic idea is how do you kind of connect the dots? What are the kind of the shortest paths that you can take to kind of connect the dots? And then how do you actually fill each of these tables with the right backends to do the right translations, to do the right caching, to do the right authentication? So does that require just like reading the GraphQL spec like super duper diligently? Like how, how is it that you are able to normalize across so many different kind of APIs and get it to all work in this in this one language? Just because like there's been a lot of work put into figuring out like how to translate all these things into GraphQL. Is there anything like special about GraphQL that makes that easier or not? Or just like we had to kind of pick something to normalize across? Okay, no, uh, two things. So GraphQL in some ways is actually awesome because in GraphQL, there is this key concept of interface and concrete types. Imagine a world of weather or imagine a world of customer records. It doesn't really matter. You want to build interfaces against kind of common things, right? Because you don't want to be dependent on what's really happening with respect to backend. But sometimes, sometimes you want to actually access details that are only available in backends. Right? So there are only two paradigms that exist. Either you take the entire backend crap and expose it as, as a type, which is entirely possible, but then you get all the gobbledygook that comes with the backend in order to make something work. Or you say, no, look, you have got an interface and the backend is an implementation, backend one is an implementation, backend two is an implementation, backend three is an implementation. And GraphQL 
has a very, very nice and natural way of doing this. Okay, so that's, that's one part of why we actually fell in love with GraphQL. It is just a very nice way of building out an API against multiple backends with kind of different capabilities, et cetera. And, and you'll see that when you look at, when you play with Step Zen and you look at weather examples and all that, some, some weather, some backends produce extra information, some less, but you can still have a kind of common interface. So it's very useful. But the second thing that's happened is that the state of the art with respect to machine learning and data analysis has become really, really good. We have learned a bit when we were at Google and we know, we know a lot of things. So for example, today, if you point us to a database, we can scurry around in the database and you say, okay, look, this table is connected to this table, but this table looks like something else that is somewhere else. We're not fully there, but as you know, we are kind of working on it. And therefore, we can actually pop out of a reasonably smart and intelligent GraphQL just by introspecting because a lot of advances in data and machine learning techniques we can actually dig into. And some of us have actually done that in the past. So basically, kind of a combination of these two allows us to make the task of setting this up, we believe, significantly easier in our way of doing it than any other way of doing it. But how are we using the blockchain? <laughs> okay, I'm not going to comment on blockchain because some of our audience may get may get annoyed by my strong views. We can talk about blockchain next time, yeah. <laughs> yeah, having done distributed databases, I have a bias against blockchain, but nonetheless. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, um, yeah, that's all that's all really great stuff. And something else that I know Stepson has really been focusing on is Connecting with the Jamstack community, and this is, of course, a big, we're part of the Jamstack community, you know, it's the Full Stack Jamstack podcast, and so many people are interested in the Jamstack right now, and I find that some people are, like, genuinely interested in it, like myself, and then some people are like, us, oh, this is big trends that I kind of feel like I have to pay attention to, and then some people are, like, super, super anti-Jamstack, which we've talked about on on some episodes, but... I'm kind of curious, like, how do you think of the Jamstack? What are you looking to like get out of connecting with the Jamstack? And like, why do you think it's like an interesting space? Awesome. I'm very much in the pro Jamstack camp for a very, very simple reason. I have seen the very simple world when Tim Berners-Lee came out with, with the web, okay, where everything was kind of static HTML. And then I saw all the all the layers upon layers upon layers that got created in order to add kind of dynamism. And then there would be something else that would be introduced in order to kind of compensate for the dynamism and all that stuff. And it, the whole stack basically became really, really complicated. And then with kind of JavaScript in the browser and kind of APIs on the back end, there is this chance to kind of go back to the future if that's the expression and really kind of build something fundamentally better and, and that's why I just kind of, I just love the founding principles of Jamstack. Now, what I also love about the fact in Jamstack is that the A in Jamstack, as you know, is APIs. Because APIs is how you get content that you actually build into your Jamstack sites, whether you're building kind of the static part of it or whether on the dynamic side of it, you're fetching weather or fetching delivery or fetching whatever else it is that you need to fetch during kind of the dynamic constructs, right? So APIs is really how content and data meets the Jamstack sites. And we believe that that this kind of the ability to set up this this kind of GraphQL and, and kind of 
easily deploy it in kind of serverless functions or just have browsers directly connect to it, et cetera, is going to be fundamentally transformative for the front end developers to now be able to pick and choose whatever data they want and basically build awesome Jamstack sites. And you know this very well as to kind of the components and the integration with kind of common Jamstack tools that we're doing in steps in in order to actually make this happen. But I actually fundamentally, I love the concept of Jamstack. If Jamstack didn't have APIs in it, I would have loved it still. But Jamstack has APIs in it and steps in then becomes a very, very important capability to provide those APIs, whether you're building static or dynamic. That's cool. Yeah. One of the things that I really enjoy about the Jamstack is that it's always been very open source focused and I actually found a blog post you wrote a while ago about things you learned after leaving IBM. Oh my God. Yes. On my, my, my type pad account. Absolutely. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, I thought it was awesome because you, you spoke to something which, you know, I identify with very strongly. You said that people talk a lot in a good sense about the innovations they're doing and that they give talks and they're reading and listening and watching and most importantly, coding. And you said that you didn't really appreciate this kind of open common knowledge sharing until you start getting into the, the coding aspect. And this, this really resonated with me and the knowledge sharing aspect of open source resonate with me, obviously as, as a teacher, you know, because like as a teacher, you care a lot about sharing knowledge. So what have you kind of gotten out of, out of open source, you know, since you kind of like were exposed to it and kind of like got it, you know, back then, like what has your kind of journey through open source been like since then? I just have one subtlety about open source, which is that how many of us have actually opened up the Postgres code to see how they actually do it, right? Very few of us, right? But we love Postgres as a database. So I think that the, the, the fact about, about open source, really what is fundamentally more important is with adoption, it gets improvements. And improvements are not constrained by the team that actually started that effort. Okay, so to me, that is the most important thing with respect to kind of the open source. What has really impressed me that the openness, as opposed to just open sourceness, the openness has really brought so many more people into the fold of IT. If you really think about it, Anthony, and think about 10, 15 years back, you'd be doing music, right? And it'll just be kind of this cathedral of computer science gobbledygook that would make a very smart person like you still not be able to kind of break into it. But with this kind of openness and open sourceness, somebody who's inherently really smart and intelligent like you, but has a different background, was able to kind of grasp and grok and self-learn these concepts. And to me, that's the most important thing that this kind of openness culture has done. Yeah, totally agree, 100%. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being here, Anant. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to work at your company. I've been having a, a blast so far, and I'm really looking forward to kind of getting out into the world and showing people how StepZen works and kind of what they can build with it. Because as I was saying earlier in the episode, like it can be a little hard to wrap your wrap your mind around, which is you know similar to to Redwood in a lot of ways. And I think the fact that Redwood was really hard to wrap your mind around is actually something that kind of interested me about it. Like it's a it's a it's an intellectual challenge to first not only understand it, but then to 
figure out a way to convey that understanding to to others. So it's a it's a fun challenge, and and I look forward to kind of getting out into the world and, and communicating this crazy thing that that you've built. So thanks for bringing me aboard. Two things out there, uh, Anthony. First, that we have built and we are building. It takes a village. And second is, as much as you say, Anand, thank you for the opportunity. I'm going to actually say the reverse, which is Anthony. Thank you for the opportunity for getting a chance to work with uh, people like you. Uh, I'll come back to where I started, which is that life is just but but a learning journey. We do interesting stuff. We do fun stuff. But every day, we should know a bit more than we know before. And to me, hanging around with people like you as kind of representatives of, of the developers is just an uh, awesome privilege. So thank you very much. And then thank you very much for also hosting me here. Thank you.